Hello and welcome to the Sustainable Living Show on WMNF Tampa 88.5, where every Monday at 11 we bring you a conversation with local experts on sustainable issues. Your hosts today are myself, Kenny Coogan, and the wonderful Annie Ellis. Thank you, Kenny. Good to see you. Wonderful, Kenny Coogan. (laughs) Thank you. Irene is answering your calls today, and Greg is working the board. Thank you so much. And today we are talking with Dr. Gavin Naylor, director of the Florida Program for Shark Research at the University of Florida. And we're going to be talking about sharks and rays and sawfish, and we are so excited about that. I am so excited. Because I did a bunch of research. It's a little different than our typical program, right. but uh, these are animals that we need to protect right. well, the and learn more about. Sawfish is very endangered. Yes. Very endangered. But before we begin that, we have, I think, a brand new event that's going to oh, be wow. happening okay. uh, this Saturday. So All on right. the line, we have Wendy. Hi, Wendy. Hi, Wendy. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. And uh, Wendy, can you tell us what your title is and where you work? Yeah, sure. My name is Wendy. I'm the Chief of Customer Experience here at Keel Farms. Uh, Keel Farms is home to Keel and Curly Winery, Keel Farms Agrarian, Ales and Ciders. We are a winery, brewery, restaurant, all on a 25-acre farm property. Can I stop you real quick? Because I can't understand where that, what the name of that is. Can you spell it out? Yeah, it's Keel Farms, which is K E E L. Okay. Farms. Keel Farms. Okay, great. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I really had no idea where it was. Oh, yeah, no worries. Okay, we're good. City, Florida. And we're really excited. This is the first year that we decided to do a Plant of Palooza. Oh. Um, and we do, you know, we do a lot of events year round. This one's going to be huge. We have, you know, over 30 vendors. Um, all local uh, plant and garden vendors um, coming over to our farm. We have um, different food trucks. We have, we're have we a very family-friendly farm, so we'll be doing tours and tastings of our, our products. Um, so just a neat way to spend your days supporting different local businesses. Fantastic. That sounds pretty good. And on the Facebook uh, event, it, right now, over 7,000 people are interested. Oh, wow. Which is much more than some of those bigger plant sales yeah. that are in the fall and the spring. So, Keel, K E E L Farms, and they yes. would go to your Facebook page, or how would they manage to get up more information on that? I would I would check out our website. It's just www.keelfarms.com. That way you can learn a little bit more about us and, you know, different sustainability practices that we practice here on our farm and property. Okay. Um, and then also just, you know, make a reservation if you plan on dining with us. Oh, so you'll have the dining going on uh, same day. Yes, yes. How many can you hold at one time? Can you hold Uh, 7,000 people? (laughs) That's what I was thinking. I'm like, oh, there's going to be a riot. How many can you hold? Lucky, we have a huge property, lots of parking available. (laughs) We have 200 seats at a time. So we're we're pretty quick service. Yeah. um, Buy lots of groceries, be be prepared, right? Yeah. Yeah, luckily, you know, we have so much to do. So while you wait for your table, you know, you can go out and shop local. Yeah. There's a bar outside. So there's plenty of things for you to do. Walk around. We have goats on the property, chickens. We sell our farm oh, fresh fun. eggs. 
So definitely a lot to do. While, oh, while that sounds away. wonderful. Sounds like a lovely place. Where that is that location again? In Plant City, Florida. Plant City. Very good. Right down the road. Yeah. Very good. All right. Thank you, Wendy. We uh, are looking forward to this hopefully yeah. annual plant festival. Yeah. And this is your first one too, right? Yes. Yay. Yes. All right. Well, I hope it goes off with a bang. Thank you. Thanks for the support. It's a pleasure. You have a great day. You as well. Bye-bye. All right. So now for the rest of the program, we're going to go from wine to sharks. <laughs> <laughs> I've known a few. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, like I mentioned earlier, we're talking with Dr. Gavin Naylor, Director of the Florida Program for Shark Research at University of Florida. And we're talking about sharks, rays, and sawfish. Welcome to the program, Gavin. Hey, Gavin. Hi, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. We are excited. We're we're very excited. We're like really excited. I, know. <laughs> I looked up so much stuff. I was so, oh my God, I can't believe this kind of stuff. It was great. You want to read it or you want me to read it? Um. I Actually, think we're, yeah, I think, I we're, think good, we're good. But uh, Gavin, I yeah. wanted to tell you a little bit background about my experience with sharks. Okay. I worked at an aquarium for 10 years. And one year I was an aquarist and I took care of the 20,000 gallon shark tank. It had maybe five sharks total in it. And I had to walk oh. on this 12 inch uh, platform, wooden platform Ooh, every other day to feed them. And it was actually like nerve wracking sure and it was, was scary. Yeah. And then after I left the aquarium, I've been lucky enough to like travel around the world. And every time I go to a place that has sharks, I purposefully go swimming or snorkeling with them. Oh, to get rid of the fear? Yeah, to get rid of the fear, but also like just to like see them. And when I'm snorkeling, I always think they're like, like they're kind of like doofy. <laughs> they're, they're cute. And they're uh, inquisitive. They're very inquisitive. I think that's part of the problem. It's like I was just telling Greg just a minute ago in Hawaii, I had a friend that I, I saw a surfboard and it had these teeth marks that looked like a whole mouth print. And I went, that looks just like a bite. And he says, it is. And he said a shark came up because it was inquisitive and it bit his surfboard to see if it was something good to eat. And so he just picked his feet up and kept him on the board and paddled in. But I, that's that's a big thing, isn't it? being inquisitive for those sharks. Gavin. It can be. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, Gavin, we're interested in sharks and rays and sawfish, but why are those animals interesting to biologists and scientists? Well, they're old. And when scientists tell people that a group of animals is old, we really don't know what that means. But essentially what it means is that forms that look like the modern forms can be recognized in the fossil record yes. a long time ago. And we can recognize things that look very shark-like, and we believe they are the precursors to sharks 400 million years ago. That's amazing. That's about 100 times longer than humans have been around. And what we mean by that is, you know, when did humans first start? Well, they started when these apes started running around on their back legs and started using tools. It's quite arbitrary at what point we say, you know, an organism arises. And essentially what we do is we see if we can recognize something similar that we think is the same a long time ago in the fossil record. And so sharks and rays, well, sharks in particular, have been around for a hundred times longer than humans have. And so if they've been around this long, you must be doing something pretty clever because 
they've overcome all of the <clears throat> extinction events and environmental changes that have happened to the world, such as the Permian extinction, where 80 to 90% of all living things went extinct, or the Cretaceous ex extinction, they've survived that too. So how do they do that? People often ask me, <coughs> excuse me, they ask me, uh, how do these, uh, how do these animals deal with climate change? And I say, well, they've, they've dealt with um, the Permian extinction, they've dealt with the Cretaceous extinction, I think they're going to be just fine. The thing that they can't deal with is people pulling them out of the water mm. as bycatch or targeting them. So mm. that's the real concern for them. Yeah. So that that you're talking about how they do the shark hunting and they are uh, killing them for shark fin soup and that sort of thing? Well, absolutely. Um, the world has become much better educated about the problems associated with targeting sharks for their fins and people all over the world are aware of it. It still goes on in, in parts of Southeast Asia, but to a much lesser extent. But um, the, the problem is that they're also caught by accident. People may be targeting some, oh. um, some you know, netting or long lining for particular target species, and they catch these sharks in the process by mistake, and that's called bycatch. Yes. And the bycatch is, uh, is a major a source of mortality. And that's sharks. not just for the sharks. That's for everything because uh, they, get, they, they can't grow into maturity to be able to procreate. Is that correct? Um, well, it, it, sharks are you know, largely mesopredators or apex predators, and they spend a lot of time cruising around the oceans, which are fairly bleak places. And so if they see something on a line, they're particularly prone to go and uh, you know to bite it, and if it's a if it's a mackerel on a hook, then and you're supposedly targeting swordfish, swordfish or something else, then then you might get a shark by mistake. And, and sharks take a long time to reach maturity. Some of them can live 60, 70 years mm -hmm. and not mature till they're 10 or 15 years mm -hmm. old. And so if we pull them out of the water, then it's going to take a long time for them to recover. Animals with a shorter generation time, faster turnover will uh, respond or recover more quickly than something with a long generation time. Yeah, that's always very interesting to me how they're pulling out lots of different fish like tuna and lots of different fish. They're, they're taking them before they are uh, or not much into maturity. It may be right. at mature stage, but if they, from 10 years to 60 years, there's a long time in there for them to be able to uh, make a lot more animals. Right. And yeah. Gavin, I think a lot of people know that sharks and rays are related to each other. They right. have common ancestors. And you're the director of the Florida Program for Shark Research at the University of Florida. So can you talk about why you're talking about sawfish? I'm so excited about sawfish. I can't even right. stand it. And how so, they're related uh, or if they're related to sharks and rays? Sure. So uh, sawfish are a kind of ray. And uh, rays can get very big. And this particular ray is really unusual in that it's got an exaggerated snout, a rostrum we call it, and it's studded with these teeth and they move them horizontally um, very effectively uh, to slash through schools of fish. And uh, they will hit them, they'll stun them, and then they can come along and uh, eat the fish that they've stunned. And they have a fairly small mouth actually. But that rostrum can be four, five, even six feet long in some wow. species in the green sawfish. 
in, uh, in uh, Northern Australia. And uh, they're veritable weapons. And sawfish used to be targeted. There's a, <clears throat> a small tooth sawfish in, in Florida that used to be targeted all the way around Florida and uh, uh, primarily for uh, trophies. Yes. People would cut off this rostrum and stick them up on, you see them a lot in bars in, in South Florida, mm -hmm. stuck up on, on the wall. And uh, uh, these animals take a, a fairly long time to mature and a, long, a reasonably long time to grow. They're not the, 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 the slowest growing, but they're not the fastest either. And they live in a habitat which is really fragile. And that is, uh, they're probably only down to about, most of them down to 150 feet on the continental shelf. Oh, wow, that's is, really shallow. Yeah, wow. very shallow. And this is an area where a lot of people fish and uh, there used to be gill netting in Florida. It's been oh, bad yeah. now, fortunately, and they would get tangled up in these. So they live in an area which is very susceptible to fishing and so... Uh, they used to be really abundant in the 1940s and 1930s. You can see lots of these old black and white pictures of these animals strung up in docks, and they're, they're just fantastic-looking creatures. They really are. You know, yeah, they, they used to sell the uh, the um, snouts in the tourist uh, purchasing places because I'm, right. I'm, you know, pretty old. And, and so when we would come down here when I was a little kid, they'd have all those places that would sell shells and, you know, so on and so on, uh, uh, alligator purses. And, and they right. would have those uh, for sale in a mass. I mean, there would be like a bowl of them with a lot right. of them in there. I mean, it's a horrible the situation. Sawfish? Yeah, the sawfish ends, you know, the, uh, their, nut, their snout, yeah. Yeah, the rostrum. Yeah. Now, and, Gavin, we just uh, got a text message and somebody's asking, why am I seeing baby sharks in the souvenir shops on Treasure Island? Oh, that's horrible. So that is because they're making money. So, Gavin, <laughs> that's how, how do we support not, you know, you can't. Are they live or dead? I would say they're dead. Okay. No, they're dead. But um, so, Gavin, other than not purchasing those things. Yeah. Right. How could we support shark conservation? Well, um, the, the most effective way is just by uh, letting other people that um, uh, might fish for them know about the role that they play in the ocean. So information is probably the best solution to uh, conservation. You can contribute directly financially to various different conservation organizations, but I think the easiest way is just to learn about these animals and share the information that you learn with other people so that they become aware of the importance that these animals, that, that the role that these animals play in the ecosystem that they live in. It's interesting because, uh, because the... Um, they didn't know, you know, that's why they were, they were getting them, they were cutting them off and they were selling them. And so sure. there were so many here, they didn't realize, uh, you know, what uh, a, a um, how dangerous it's getting now to where there's so few left that unless we, you know, pay attention at this point, there will not be any more. Uh, I do have a really big question for you too, but I, we do need to uh, reintroduce ourselves so we can get some calls and some emails. Uh, sure. You're listening to The Sustainable Living Show, coming to you from the studios of WMNF in Tampa. Today's guest is Dr. Gavin Naylor, director of the 
Florida program for shark research at the University of Florida. We're talking about sharks and sawfish and rays and so on. And if you want to be part of this conversation, give us a call at 813-239-9663 or send us an email at dj at wmnf.org and we will read it on the air. My question is, since we were just talking about this particular thing a moment ago, I wanted to elaborate on it, uh, on the rostrum, on that saw, uh, I read uh, things about the electro uh, reception uh, on how they perceive things. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So um, all fascinating is sharks and rays have the capacity to detect really small amounts of current. And uh, just to put it in context, if you get a regular flashlight battery, like a D cell, and you were to put one pole in England, where I'm originally from, and another pole in Florida. And if there was no other electrical activity in the ocean, then these animals can ostensibly detect the potential difference, the current between those poles wow. all the way across the Atlantic. Now, practically they can't because there's so many other electrical activities in the area, but they can detect 10 to the minus 12 amps, pico amps. So that's the... Uh, they have this tool, this device, these ampullae, these tiny little pores all over the snout and around the underside uh, of the mouth, where the mouth is. And all of these animals can detect these small amounts of current. And it allows them to detect the electrical activity of many of the fishes that they're targeting. Or also they can uh, detect electrical profiles of objects in the water that they're swimming past. And sawfish have these ampullae around the rostrum and around the mouth. So we believe that they're particularly good at detecting current. All elasmobranchs are very good at it, but it really is a secret special uh, power. I tell young children <laughs> that, that uh, they have this capacity, another sense. And I don't know if you've seen on the news, but uh, a wonderful piece of information is that the physicists think they may have detected a new force in the universe, a, a fifth force. So we have the strong force, the weak force, electromagnetism and gravity. There may be another force out there. So uh, I'm always intrigued if there are other forces that have not yet been characterized by science that some animals may be able to pick up on. Oh, that's well, just fascinating. Probably yeah, so. Yeah. <laughs> because they, yes, that's probable. Very probable. We just haven't figured out what they already know. Well, right. I, one little bit of that is that I was thinking when you were talking about that, I was thinking, well, with all the electrical things that we put in the ocean, you know, all the cables and everything that we're putting in there and then all the sonar and such, are we interfering with their ability to eat with all that too? There's no doubt, yeah. absolutely. Uh, there's noise pollution, which affects marine mammals, which communicate with sound. And there's electrical uh, pollution. We've got lots of cables, undersea cables. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was an uh, interesting thing happened about uh, maybe 30 years ago. There's a, a large cable that goes across the Atlantic. Yes. And uh, people were having problems in that the cable kept getting bitten by sharks. So they had a survey to go out there to find out which sharks were biting the cables. So they, they went to the very deep sea to find out some of these animals, and there was a, a, a lot of money was invested in it, to uh, find out which species of sharks were biting the cables. And the, the cables were being bitten by the sharks because 
they induce the current yes. and the sharks could detect it and they would go and bite it because they weren't sure what it is. Exactly as you said before, they're curious and they could detect something that they're used to thinking as living and say well, they were experimenting and biting these cables. But absolutely, the background electrical activity in the oceans um, will undoubtedly impede their capacity to discern the signals that they're looking for. Did they come and that said, there's always electrical activity in the oceans all the time. Every organism generates an electrical field. We just, as humans, we can't really detect them. But a lot of animals are fine-tuned to detect these electrical fields. Did they get a solution to that problem or they're just... <laughs> well, yes, they, they, they want to use those tougher cables okay. and shield them okay. so that uh, they're, Shark they're better protected. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, Gavin, I was surprised to learn on your website, floridamuseum.ufl.edu slash sharks, that there are five species of sawfish around the world. Oh. And can you tell us what species of sawfish we have around Florida? Absolutely. We have the small tooth sawfish around Florida, uh, which is one of the five. And, and actually, um, the genetic work that we've done suggests that um, the small tooth sawfish may be one of the most sensitive and fragile. Um, and some of the other sawfish, the Pristis pristis, which is uh, um, um, a, a large sawfish which is found off the coast of Brazil and actually throughout the world in, in Southeast Asia, um, is very endangered. All five of the sawfishes are highly endangered. But the one which we believe to be probably the most fragile is actually the small-toothed sawfish, the one around Florida. And we have done collectively, the people of Florida, the fishing folk of Florida, the scientists in Florida, and the governmental agencies in Florida, particularly the DNR, have done such a wonderful job in educating the public and getting them to realize that these are wonderful parts of, of, uh, of what it means to, to come from Florida, that people have left them alone and reported them when they see them, and they're coming back. That's so great. If if the sawfish in Florida can make a recovery, then that means there's hope for the other four species mm -hmm. of sawfish around the world uh, because we believe they're perhaps a little bit more robust. Their life history characteristics are such that they should be a little bit more robust than the ones around Florida. So I think uh, it just shows that if people come together and collectively organize and uh, appreciate nature that, uh, and we leave it alone, then often these systems will come back of their own accord. That's good news. A year or two ago, I went to Apollo Beach, where you can go to the Tico Manatee Viewing Center, and sure. maybe like a mile away from there, um, there was all these signs that said, like, not beware, but be cautious, there's sawfish that are here. Sure. So I was yeah, wondering, sure. how likely am I to be able to find a sawfish? If, do I have to be there like eight hours a day for a year to see a sawfish or like... That's a, that's a very good question and one that I'm going to punt on and not give you a very good answer. You could be down from Wisconsin um, and go in the water for two hours and be lucky enough to see a sawfish, or you could be um, you know, live in Tampa for 30 years and, and never see one. If you go down to Charlotte Harbor, that seems to be the epicenter. Well, it is. It's the epicenter. We call it the lifeboat population of uh, small tooth sawfish in, in Florida. There, they are more abundant 
than they are in other parts of Florida. They've always been localized in that part of, of uh, Western Florida, uh, but the numbers are coming up now. And I think people that fish routinely there, if you fish, say, every day for a month, chances are you'll come across a sawfish, uh, probably a juvenile, but there's big ones down there too. And you can also find large ones in the Florida Keys from time to time, if you know where to look. What was the Charlotte location? What was it called? At Charlotte Harbor. Charlotte Harbor. Right, yeah. So yeah. you, um, I wanted to talk to you about the females, but the, this will maybe be a lead for it. Uh, you recently helped tag an adult female sawfish in Cedar Key. And what do you mean by tagging and what was the significance about the tag? Then I want to ask you a question about females. Right, so the most of the sawfish tend to be um, localized in at least in high density in the southwest part of Florida, in the Keys and around the uh, Charlotte Harbor um, and, and in that uh, region of Florida where there's lots of islands, lots of mangrove habitat, and that, that, that is where their, their populations are densest. But from time to time, uh, we see them uh, venture north. And that, as I mentioned before, is called the lifeboat population, the southwest Florida population. But uh, in the 1930s and 1940s, um, sawfish could be found all the way up the west coast of Florida, all the way around the northern uh, Gulf of Mexico, all the way across to Texas. And they've always been uh, focused and most abundant in the southwest part of Florida. But your chances of, of finding them in other parts of the Gulf of Mexico were much higher than they are today. So uh, that particular uh, specimen that was, uh, that was tagged off Cedar Key was the first or the most northerly uh, specimen that was actually tagged by the sawfish recovery team. And my colleague um, and friend, uh, Dean Grubbs, who's a professor at uh, Florida State University, um, routinely, uh, he and his graduate students routinely go and look for sawfishes and when they catch them, they tag them. And what Dean does is he goes prim primarily down to the Keys. He goes there every year and he tags these large adults. Uh, the, the DNR also tags um, a lot of juvenile sawfishes further, a little bit further north around Charlotte Harbor. Um, and, and those guys, that's where they go to tag animals, where they're most abundant. And then we can follow the tags as they ping and we can recognize animals as they move up and down the coast. Very interesting. But we usually don't tag animals very far north. Most of the tagging is done where you expect to find the animals. It's like fishing. You know, you, you wouldn't want to go fishing where you don't think there's any fish. You go fishing where you think they are. So most of the tagging is done do you think, in, in, in that southern part. Do you think that has something to do with the, the freshwater because they even go into freshwater or uh, brackish? Um. Well, uh, uh, I'm not sure they can tolerate freshwater. Certainly they go in there and uh, we find a lot of the smaller ones in freshwater. But uh, the area where we tagged this animal in Cedar Key wasn't, uh, it was, it oh, was okay. completely 100% marine environment. Um, and uh, it was a female that we think had uh, just pupped. Uh, we obviously didn't do a dissection. Uh, these animals are highly protected and anyone that we come across, we, we treat with kid gloves and, and do everything that we possibly can to ensure that uh, we don't compromise them in any way. 
Um, so it was a large female, and uh, we think it had pupped, and uh, was the uh, most northerly one that has been tagged. But as the population recovers, we fully anticipate that Dean and his graduate students will tag more of these animals closer to Adenis at the um, St. Teresa, the Florida um, State University Marine Lab is up there, and further around uh, the Big Bend, all the way over to Alabama and Mississippi and Texas. Um, we know that these animals uh, go up and down the coast there, but we haven't really tagged them. This is the most northerly one that's been tagged. Very cool. So, Gavin, you have a couple of uh, email questions, but first I want to remind listeners that this is the Sustainable Living Show coming to you from the studios of WMNF in Tampa. Today's guest is Dr. Gavin Naylor, Director of the Florida Program for Shark Research at University of Florida. We are talking about sharks and rays and sawfish. If you want to be part of the conversation, give us a call at 813 813- Two three nine nine six six three, or send us an email at dj at wmnf.org and we will read it on air. And Josh asks, you mentioned sharks and rays are interesting to biologists due to their age. Why are sawfish interesting to biologists? Why are sawfish interesting to biologists? Well, because sawfish themselves are really weird looking. You, um, I mean, they've got this giant buzzsaw on their nose. So, you know, I often tell people, you know, if we didn't have turtles, if turtles <laughs> didn't exist, and the only knowledge we had of a turtle was from a fossil, and you saw the, the carapace, the shell, in a, in a, in a fossil arrangement, people would, their imaginations would be a really challenged. You would say, what is this thing? It's got ribs. Is there flesh on the outside of the body? Is there flesh in the inside? Is this skeleton? But it's like a box. What are these holes sticking out? It's got five holes. It turns out, you know, two are for the legs and uh, four are for the legs and one is for the head and and uh, and, and, and at the, the posterior end too. But, but it would be very hard for us if we didn't have anything like a turtle <laughs> to interpret it. And so... There are organisms like this that people should know about from the Burgess Shale, a small quarry in, in, uh, in Canada that are about uh, 500 million years old. And they are so weird and they're all extinct that we don't even know what they are. Wow. There's one, just to give you an idea, called Hallucinogenia. And it's a ridiculous animal with spikes sticking all over it. We don't know which is the head, which is the, which is the, the tail end, or which way up it's going to be. All of these weird animals that we don't have contemporary examples of. <laughs> and sawfish would be like that. If you didn't see that it's got this great big buzzsaw stuck on its snout and you only had fossils, you'd say, what on earth is that? That's funny. And, and there are some sharks, you know, Helicoprion is a classic, which has got this giant set of teeth that's arranged as a helix. And we still really don't know quite whether these are in the jaw or are they on the fins. People have basically stuck these helical arrangements of teeth on various different parts of a shark's body in a guess trying to say where they are. So that's the main reason biologists find sawfish so fascinating is because they're morphologically very weird. We're drawn to the weird. As biologists, we're fascinated by the evolutionary process that yeah. has generated 
all of these it makes you think for sure yeah. uh that i was just really amused when you called it hallucinogenic and i was thinking well that's because that would be like something someone would dream up if they're hallucinating right yeah, that's it's not crazy exactly yeah. <laughs> that's so funny. gavin i work for a evolution company and i was curious briefly can you tell us are the five species of sawfish did they all come from a common ancestor or did they evolve in different places in different times from other rays? That's an excellent question. It turns out that the living five species of sawfish all come from a common ancestor and uh, they are most closely related to guitar fishes. So it's a sort of a branch of guitar fishes and guitar fishes are these sort of rhomboid shaped organisms that are also endangered and if you just take the snout from a guitar fish and stretch oh, no. it out, you could sort of imagine making it into a sawfish. So all the five living forms do have a common ancestor that's related to guitar fish. Wow. But that said, there are fossil forms which we think have evolved these rostral structures completely independently. So it's an excellent question. But the, the five that are living today all have a common ancestor. <laughs> that, that guitar fish looks like a ray and a shark that yeah. they stuck together. That <laughs> it, is it does. Super it does. It looks, but, uh, so, so one thing that is super useful for people is, you know, when you have a, a ray that looks like a shark and there's some sharks that look like rays, like angel mm-hmm. sharks, and the general public say, well, how do you know when it's a ray and when's it a shark? Mm-hmm. Well, very easily. The rays have got all of their gills, all the gill slits, on the bottom, on the ventral side. Oh, okay. And the sharks have got all the gills on the side. So if it's got gills on the side, it's a shark. If it's got gills on the bottom, it's a ray. Very good. All right, Gavin, you got one more email at least. Uh, Demi asks, why are sawfish populations declining so much? Or why have they historically declined so much? That's an excellent question. It's largely because sawfish live in areas where people fish. Um, Some very rare sharks that live at 5,000 meters are pretty safe because people don't go, well, he's not yet, uh, don't go fishing at 5,000 meters to harvest what's down there. But sawfish live on continental margins in reasonably shallow water down to about 150 feet. And there's all sorts of industries that fish these areas, shrimping in particular. Shrimp boats will drag um, their nets over the surface in these kinds of shallow waters and they will get up in targeting uh, all sorts of different fishes um, and sometimes even invertebrates. And this is the habitat that the sawfish live in. Mm. And so sawfish will get completely cleaned out uh, by by trawling. Very sad. So, Gavin, this is the Sustainable Living Show, and every week we have a sustainable expert on. And historically, for the past 10 years, we've kind of focused on permaculture and gardening and alternative energy. But then every once in a while, we have like a Florida species about plants or animals. So why should listeners who enjoy sustainable living, gardening, conserving uh, heirloom tomatoes, like, why should they even care about the well-being of sharks and rays and sawfish? Like, I know we're on the peninsula, and oh. we're in Florida, and we're next to the ocean, but, like, are these two worlds connected in any... Can you make a connection for us? Oh, absolutely. 
So uh, it's an excellent question. And a lot of people think, well, you know, it's not in my backyard, so I don't really care about it. Um, but the world's oxygen, the primary productivity of oxygen comes primarily from the sea, from al algal blooms, and also from, you know, the, uh, the uh, Amazon basin, but most of it comes from the oceans. So the oceans are this, I mean, two thirds of the sphere that we live on is ocean. And the oceans, we really need to manage them carefully because they absorb energy from the sunlight. And when it gets too hot, then we get all these storms, um, which mixes all kinds of air masses. They also, we, we need to make sure that the biota, the living forms that are there, are in balance, that we have enough oxygen that's been generated by the algae, but not too much oxygen. Uh, and, and so it's super important if you're growing your heirloom tomatoes <laughs> that you're in an environment that's predictable and stable. Mm -hmm. And that means that things that are not in your backyard are also important. Yeah. So we need to make sure that people treat the oceans with respect and it's totally fine to fish in the oceans, but we need to do it in a sustainable uh, harvesting way. It's that circle. You know, yeah. everything fits yes. together. It's like, you know, that, that phrase, the canary in the coal mine, uh, right. that the canary dies and then they know the gases are there. Well, that's kind of a little late, you know, at that point. But if we right. start to recognize, you know, that, that losing one thing affects another thing and it goes down the line. One thing I really, really, really wanted to talk to you about because I was fascinated about this when I looked it up was the uh, parthenogenesis. Uh, right. of the Absolutely. females. And I just thought that was fascinating. If you could uh, elaborate on that, that would be... Maybe define what... Yeah, person. define what it is. And then um, I understand that 3% uh, of the ones that are here, the females, uh, did this on their own. So, so parthenogenesis is basically cloning itself. It's, uh, it's sometimes called virgin birth, um, where uh, the females can actually produce offspring that are clones of themselves. And uh, uh, initially, we, we weren't aware that, that sharks and rays did this, um, but people would keep these animals in aquaria and they'd have a wild caught animal. And after three years, it would have pups and they would say, wow, it's storing sperm for at least three years. And then oh. another aquarium would have one for five years and say, well, ours has got sperm storage for five years. And then somebody else would have one for seven years. And then an aquarium in Germany had an animal that had been on its own, living on its own, was born in the aquarium, and it had a bunch of pups. Well, there's no way that could have been storing sperm. So everybody's scratching their heads and going, uh-oh, what's going on? So they did genetic tests and found out that the offspring were actually identical to the mum. And so they realized that these animals, or at least in captivity, were cloning themselves. Well, once we realized, uh, and the technical term is parthenogenesis, <clears throat> Um, and it involves uh, basically not reducing the, uh, the genetic complement uh, to half, which is what normally happens for sexually reproducing animals. You, you reduce sperm have got half of the DNA that most of your cells have. Eggs have got half of the DNA. And when they join together, they recombine and, and make whole again. So you've got the standard amount of, of DNA to, to, to go through development. Well, they found a little trick, which actually a lot of organisms yes, do. Yes, I did not um, know that until I looked yeah, this up. Yeah, it's, it's very, in fact, 
it's a smart way to go. I mean, <clears throat> if you, <clears throat> you <laughs> want to survive for a long time, <laughs> you know, you clone yourself when it's when it's you know when there's nobody around and <laughs> and go through sexual reproduction to mix things up a bit when there's a lot of a lot of individuals around. Yeah, that's yeah. funny. Yeah. yeah. Now, Gavin, it's fascinating. I really had no idea. I don't know if you knew this, but yesterday was International Armadillo Day. Oh, again. Oh, my I, goodness. I, I did not. <laughs> we talked about it last week. I didn't realize it was yesterday. Yes. Yes, okay. And uh, armadillos, they can delay their pregnancy by one to two years. Oh, wow. So they can hold on to the sperm. And, so they can yeah. hold it then. Yeah. They're not doing a cloning. Correct. Okay. Yeah. You know, one of the things when you were talking about when they do, you were saying about that they, you thought that they had pumped. I was interested in that. What is that? Uh, do they have like those little hard do, shell? Do they have live teeth? Birth? Do they have saws yeah. when they are birthed? Is it, a, is it an egg? Oh, yeah. The, the sawfish. I thought you were talking about armadillos. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they, yeah. What they have is little pieces of of sort of spongy tissue between each of the teeth, like a sheet. Oh, but yeah. But otherwise, they'd scratch up the mum's uterus. Yeah. And, so, and it's very smooth. And when they are born, that dissolves away within 24 hours. And when it dissolves away, they've got these sharp little pointy rostral teeth. That is so and, cool. Uh, they're that ready should to have go. been the headline of the show. <laughs> really? That is so mm-hmm. interesting. So they have like a little coating that's naturally on them yes, and it dissolves right. off. Wow. Yeah. That's yeah. pretty and cool. so it's a live birth yeah. then. Right. It's interesting that you talked about armadillos what? because uh, armadillos have an interesting reproduction, which is uh, uh, quite unusual. They have um, quadruplets that are identical. And uh, uh, every, every set of armadillos, is, there's four of them, and the egg, which is basically not part of the genetic, it's a regular egg, it splits once, and then each of those splits again. So you now have four eggs, and then they develop into little armadillos. Oh. They, they always have four of them at a time. So it started Most from one egg. <clears throat> yeah. All of them. That's interesting. So we, uh, I wanted to make but, sure. Well, let me back up. That's only for the nine-banded armadillo. Just the nine-banded. Right. Okay. <laughs> yes. Because there's another species that always gives birth to six or 12 identical Oh, yeah. That's pups. right. You mentioned that's that right. last week. But they only have six nipples. Oh, um, oh wow. So they have to die off? The yeah. ones no, die off, the, um, or they just take turns? Hopefully turn. a lot of them. So I wanted to ask you, you, I wanted to be specific. So that is a live birth for the sawfish then, obviously. Right. Okay. Can you that talk about me. I don't know why. Um, all of the different ways sharks and rays can give birth? Oh, my goodness. Yes. Is, so there, got, is there only three ways? <laughs> oh, there's sharks that lay eggs. Yeah. That's, there's sharks that have got live birth. There's sharks that basically the eggs hatch inside the mum. And then they're sustained by, by fluids. So a manta ray, for example, a manta usually just has one pup. And it's actually uh, nourished by interuterine milk or histotroph. Oh, my It's goodness. basically a fatty solution that surrounds the pup. And it sort of feeds on it. It gulps it. And then a baby manta is about 100 pounds, <gasps> three feet across. And when they're born... They basically pop out and you see this big cloud of milky solution. That's all the, the histotroph. So that's one way they're nourished. Other ones, as I said, the eggs are laid on the reef and when they hatch and then the babies are on their own. And there's even sharks that have placenta, just like we do. Placenta wow. have evolved multiple times in animals. This idea of a, a bag, a membranous bag that... that uh, each um, uh, embryo is in 
and it gets uh, nutrition from the mum's blood supply. Well, sharks have evolved this too. And sharks, some of these sharks have little belly buttons. If you look right between the petrol oh, yeah. fins and the newborn, you can see a little slit. That and that is slit so is the belly button. Now, you, you said that the uh, manta ray could be birthed at 100 pounds. Were they in a tight little tube uh, shape? <laughs> their arms are wrapped, their little fins are wrapped all around them in like one That's tube, exactly you know? right. They're wrapped up like and a pretzel. They, and then they open up after they are born. Yeah. Wow. And uh, yeah. how big is the mom? Oh, well, yeah. That, uh, the mom can be 16, 18 feet across. So we oh, yeah, wow. put it in context there. Yeah. 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 Now, um, Annie and I share a Google Drive account where we pass on our information. And I don't know if it's been hacked because about once a month, I mentioned how CBS this morning has a very similar story to us. They copied us again. I think they copy us, Gavin. So yesterday <laughs> they had a little segment about identifying humpback whales online. Yeah. So um, historically, you would take a picture of the tail. And then you would go through a like a literal photo book. They're all different. And it would take right. like an hour to go through and say, oh, I this is a new whale or we already have this whale. So they created yeah. this uh, device or this online account where anybody anywhere in the world can upload the tail uh, of the whale and then they can see if it's been identified or not. So if you had a genie or unlimited funds <laughs> as a shark and sawfish research scientist, what would you most like to know? Like, what's what's a big uh, question that you still have? So different people like to know different things. So my friend Dean Grubbs would like to know where they move and where they give birth and where they mate. A lot of people would like to know that. I would like to know uh, how these, and all animals and, and sharks just have a very long history, how you develop and become morphologically the way you are. Um, so what in the programming of these living systems makes one group have this goofy rostrum studded with teeth? What in another group makes these fins, these pectoral fins, stuck to the head and become a giant manta ray? What in the system means... Uh, creates a situation where some of these animals lay eggs where others develop a placenta. I would like to know the architecture yes. that's responsible for generating all these different kinds of life forms. Life on, on our planet is 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 quite humbling. It is it very is interesting. So spectacular. <coughs> There's you know eight million different kinds of eukaryote animals varying from you know a bumblebee bat to a blue whale, mm. all of these things have got a common evolutionary thread, and yet they've diversified in really peculiar ways, and they all make a living. So that's what I would like to know. I would like <laughs> to know why there's so many different kinds of life forms on the planet, and how did they become so self-organized? And and we could never do that as engineers. We couldn't. <sighs> put together what nature has done 
without, you know, any studying or engineering, all it's, this self-organization and gene it, expression. It's interesting it's because mystery. it seems like to me, just as non-scientist, but as a thinker, that each one of those that developed a different format of, um, of birthing, was it was counter to where they were in their environment. So each one of those that were in those specific areas warranted that for them to be able to uh, have to develop in that way. It just seems exactly. like that to me anyway and then there was another one uh it's it is we have a question here it's the or a statement really it's the 20th anniversary of sawfish placement on the endangered species list is this a good thing and what would we like to take to get them to recover and get off that list or do we ever want them off the list really that's a great question so um we we think from the recaptured data and from the movement data done by uh, Dean and, and many other colleagues around Florida, scientists and, and uh, government agencies that have tagged these, the DNR in particular, we think that they are probably on their way to recovery. But we don't want to say, okay, it's an open season on sawfish because we'll lose them very quickly. Yes. So we want to be sure that uh, they, they certainly look, at, I mean, we're encouraged and we're optimistic that if we continue these measures in another 40, 50 years, that they'll be back to uh, uh, levels that we saw um, 60 to 80 years ago. Um, but then uh, <clears throat> in 40, 50 years, hopefully the world will have much better appreciation and be much better educated about sustainability and about living with the other organisms on the planet. And so we won't have to, we won't have to put these dire draconian rules and say people have to go to jail if they do various things that right. most people will actually have a culture of uh, respect for right. nature. And so we're Fingers. fairly optimistic that things will, will, will pan out fairly well. That's very optimistic. Five fingers are crossed for that. <laughs> of human nature, I'm not, I, I hope so. So, Gavin, I emailed you, but I don't know if you got it. I'm part of the IUCN's Northern group, so I'm on the IUCN, the um, the organization that. Oh, cool! That, 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 that's how you know all about armadillos. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So uh, the IUCN, they're the ones who, where you get scientists to donate their time, and then they say if oh. it's endangered or threatened or critically endangered, blah blah. I always say blah, blah, blah. I shouldn't. Yeah. All right. So I'm on their page and I see all these sawfish and their status for the small tooth sawfish, which is the one yeah. that's in Florida, it says critically endangered. Oh, that's um, really little. Endangered. Yeah. And all then, five sawfish species are critically endangered. All of yeah. them. Okay. So... And and you think and you think that that's well uh, a series of reasons. Like the first reason is they used to to kill them because they wanted to solve. Then they uh, then they were using yeah. Do all they have the, the same? Do the same threats apply to these global species? Yes, they do, and it's largely because of where they live. They you know live oh, that's on these continental margins where yes. people like to fish. Yes, and so that's the biggest problem. I mean, they 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 have been targeted for their rostrum. And that certainly doesn't help. But even if nobody collected any more rostra, um, you know, we'd still got these shrimp boats and uh, lots of bycatch that would be responsible for, for getting these animals by mistake. Haven't they changed that uh, long lines fishing and, and those uh, netting? Haven't they made that uh, different? Oh, in, 
in Florida, we, we're not allowed to use gill nets anymore, which is great. And that has had a huge impact on the uh, slow recovery of uh, a lot of animals, and particularly sawfish. But in other parts of the world where sawfish occur, in Southeast Asia, um, yeah, they don't Asia. have the resources um, to manage their fisheries and police them as well as uh, perhaps we do. And so they're vulnerable in, in lots of, of, of parts of the world where um, there's, there's more sort of uh, people rely on the seas for making a living and uh, they're not as policed as well as they are in uh, uh, federal waters here in the US. Yeah, they've been doing the same thing for so many years, they don't really know how to change it. So Gavin, you got one last uh, email, it's from Ellen. We hear a lot of environmental doom and gloom on the media regarding mostly sharks. Is there any good news out there regarding sharks or sawfish? Absolutely. Um, I think most nature will rebound fairly well if we just leave things alone. And sharks are no different. Now, sharks live a long time and they have long generation times. But so it's going to take us, whereas it might just take us 10 years for anchovy to recover, it's going to take us more like 50 or 100 years for these shark populations to recover. But if we leave things alone, I am confident that they will recover. So I agree with your caller that there is a lot of doom and gloom. And, uh, you know, a lot of young people sort of, I've got young children they sort of throw their hands up in the air and say, right. what, what kind of a world are you leaving us? And, right. and uh, I tell them that, well, we're leaving a world with a lot more environmentally aware people that appreciate what's going on. And I'm confident that things will rebound. That's a lovely way to think Very about good. it. So thank, thank you so much, Dr. Gavin Naylor. You're the director of the Florida Program for Shark Research at the University of Florida. Where can people go to learn more about your research or sharks and rays? So they can go to the uh, Florida Museum of Natural History's um, webpage and we have the shark program. Um, So if you just Google shark program, Florida Museum of Natural History, uh, and you'll get taken to uh, the Florida program for shark research. And uh, then there's all sorts of links you can learn about shark attacks. um, And we have an interactive map where all of the shark attacks, we manage the international shark attack files. So every bite since the 1960s that has been documented, we have a record of it and we have an interactive map and you can go and click on the dots and you can see which species was involved and where they happened. And then you can go and see the natural history of the sharks that are responsible. And you, we want to convert people from being frightened about sharks mm-hmm. as to understanding how fascinating they are. We are, cl- we are out of time. So thing. thank okay. you so much. so much for being on our show. We really appreciate it. We're I, in, next pleasure. week, we're going to have our guest. It'll be John Gidding. He's formerly a designer of the hugely popular HGTV Curb Appeal series. We're going to be talking about exterior designing with native plants and trees. If you enjoyed the show and our weekly content, please go to WMNF.org, donating through the tip jar and directing your donation to the Sustainable Living Show. Stay tuned. In the next hour, you will hear WMNF's Community Speaks with Mabili. And you can follow our Facebook page, Sustainable Living WMNF, to stay in the loop. And to listen to past shows, just go to Listen On Demand on WMNF.org. And I am Annie Ellis. And uh, remember... Go ahead. (laughs) If you're looking for someone to save the world, look in the mirror. And this is WMNF Tampa. Bye. Bye.